The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Welcome everyone. Thanks for coming tonight. Thanks to all the people in Nancy's yoga class who set up for us tonight, came early. It's really appreciated. So tonight is the last uh, night that we'll be discussing equanimity for a while, at least. And we've been covering this particular topic for the last two months. Really powerful way to reflect on our lives, to look at our daily life, our sitting meditation experience, but also more generally just our life in the world through the lens of equanimity. Like just a simple... Uh, interest in the experience, like what is the experience of equanimity? What's in the way of the experience of equanimity? Is it wholesome to be relating with equanimity? Is there something dangerous or inappropriate about it? So this is what we've been looking at, thinking about, and then practicing with the last couple months. And last week I mentioned that... uh, just putting equanimity in the context of the whole path, which it's really this path of practice that the Buddha set forth is really a path of rediscovering, in a sense, or learning how to be free with the way things are. And so equanimity is a real pointing out of the direction where one discovers that freedom. So if... You know, somebody asks you, well, what is it that you're interested in in terms of Buddhist meditation, Buddhist mindfulness practice? Well, we would say something like, well, I'm interested in being more completely at ease, more completely free with my experience, whatever that might be, whether I'm having a good day or a bad day or a pleasant moment or an unpleasant moment. And then if the person asked, well, what have you learned? (laughs) Like, how... How does one be more free with their experience? And then we'd be able to say something through our own experience, based on our own direct experience, we'd be able to say something like, what I'm learning is that there's something profoundly transforming when I start relating to my lived experience with what I call equanimity. So instead of relating to a given moment of experience with a charge, I'm here trying to do it right. I'm here trying to make this a good moment. We take a different approach to how we relate to the moment. And, you know, we have a placeholder for this different approach. We call it equanimity. Or if you like, you can call it being wise, relating wisely to the present moment. So tonight I want to talk about The whole idea of freedom, of being free with experience, is so that we can live as a human being, you know, live with relationships, live in this world. It isn't about, you know, removing ourselves from the world. And the Buddha made this very clear because he outlined that our basic problem is that we crave. We crave sense experience. We crave wanting to become somebody. And we also crave wanting to not become, like to be done with, 
So that's often, like I've said in the past weeks, you know, that masquerades as equanimity. Like, oh, I'm just tired of it all. I'm tired of having to work. I'm tired, tired of having a body that I have to take care of. I'm tired of living in a world that's such a mess. And there's a sort of aversion to some aspect or all aspects of our life. But that's not equanimity. That's aversion. That's a kind of craving. So equanimity, this way of relating wisely to experience, really frees us up to respond, to interact, to engage our lived experience. It isn't numbing out or withdrawing from life. It's, it's really about coming alive in our experience. So, you know, you might be having a really overwhelming time, either with your friends or your kids or your job situation might be completely overwhelming, asking too much, you know, where we feel this isn't workable, this isn't appropriate. And then the conditioned response or kind of ordinary response to that moment is to do one of the three cravings. Like either we're going to crave a sense experience to distract yourself from feeling overwhelmed, like I need to have some ice cream, I need a beer or a six-pack or, you know, whatever it might be, we, you know, a good movie, a new life, or we want to crave becoming. Like that's like I want to be the person with a different kind of job or a different kind of family, different kind of responsibilities. That's the becoming. Or we want the extinction, you know. I'm tired of this. I just want out. Get me out of this. So it's not like we're attracted to something. We're just attracted to this being done. That's our usual, you know, conditioned response. And equanimity is just the opposite of this sort of discovery. It's really the discovery that comes from insight, which means... It doesn't really make sense when we talk about it. It doesn't make sense uh, from a sort of our conditioned or habit energy. It doesn't make sense to tell ourselves, honey, just open to the chaos, open to the feeling of being overwhelmed, open to the pain in your body, open to the sadness in your heart open to the uncertainty. It doesn't make sense intellectually. Like, why would that work? But when we experiment, like in a very simple way, we're sitting, and let's say we have just a lot of restless energy in our minds, in our bodies, and then we can experiment because, of course, the restlessness in our body and mind, it's going to trigger those three conditioned responses. Either get distracted, like wanting some nice sense experience, or wanting to become somebody who's not overwhelmed by restlessness. You know, we imagine the Dalai Lama being able to sit perfectly still. And then we, you know, oh, I want to be the Dalai Lama, or I want to meet the Dalai Lama so I can become a student of the Dalai Lama, or whatever your trip might be. But it's some kind of becoming someone who's not restless, you know, or we want it over with. So that's the condition habit, but now we maybe experiment a little bit getting interested in the experience of being restless, right? We notice, well, this is what's happening. This is what's predominant. This is my lived experience right now. This is, in a sense, the truth of my life, this restlessness in the body, this restlessness in the mind. 
So we turn toward it. It's like kind of an allegiance to the truth of the present moment. When all when all else fails, you know, as a practitioner, someone interested in this path, the Buddha Buddha laid out, then we have this allegiance to the truth of the present moment. Like we don't need any more clarity than that remembering. I am a student of the present moment. My guru is the present moment, the way it is now. That's where I take my refuge. And so we practice turning toward it with interest. So that we're not, the interest is what prevents us when we turn toward the way that it is in the body and mind. Without an interest, an authentic interest, in a sense we're going to get sucked into our conditioned way of reacting to what's being felt or seen or experienced. So when we're actually interested in the present moment, it actually buffers the mind, it protects the mind from our tendency to react in those three ways. Distraction, wanting to become, wanting to get rid of. So we get interested in it. That's a way of honoring it. Interest is a kind of love or devotion. So now we're interested in the present moment. We're devoted. We respect it. Oh, it's like this. And part of the present moment is our compulsion to react to it in our conditioned way. So we have to respect that too. Oh, this compulsion, this intention, this kind of feeling uh, propelled into some reactive response. Oh, it's like this. Oh, it's like this. And not just in one moment, but moment by moment, recognizing it's like this, it's like this. And it, it sort of uh, brings us into the proximity of this insight into what we call equanimity or, or wisdom. What equanimity, what allows for real equanimity is this insight. Uh, um, Ajahn Chah, this wonderful Thai meditation master, Buddhist monk, who died you know, about 20 years ago, he had this way of describing it as asking his students, do you know what still flowing water is? Of course, people are like, I don't know. I know still water. I know what flowing water is, but I don't know what still flowing water is. And he would say, exactly, you don't know. This is what you have to see. And so this is a, a simile for this insight where we're in our moment, you know, our present moment, opening to what's predominant, what's in a sense asking for attention, presenting itself in the mind and body. Oh, this is how it is. This is all the movement. This is the flowing part of the water. And the stillness is the wisdom. It takes wisdom to be in the world. Without wisdom, we become the chaos. We become the movement. We get thrown around. Like I mentioned last week, we were talking about the eight worldly winds of gain and loss, pain and pleasure, fame and disrepute, praise and blame. The Buddha talked about these eight vicissitudes or eight worldly winds. But it's just, a, you know, it's just a teaching to talk about how this world of conditions, it's constantly churning. We're interested in that, and we're afraid of that, and we're bored by this, and this, and then that, and the mind, and the body, and the world around us. 
Everything is swirling with change, with up and down, in and out, good and bad. This just characterizes the conditioned world. This isn't a mistake. There's nothing we can do about this. Buddhist practice doesn't eliminate this change. It just brings it into perspective because of this remembering or this realization of stillness. And the stillness is an actual discovery or a rediscovery of what isn't moving in the midst of all this changing. But because our mind is conditioned to be fixated, to be attached or identified with everything that's swirling, our thoughts are swirling, sensations are swirling, what we see is moving, what we hear is moving, and our mind, or can, you know, what we normally call our thinking mind, what feels like Mark, is always fixating on what's changing. And it's fixating in a way to get its solid ground. It's sort of like I'm looking for stability, but I'm looking for it in what's always changing and moving, whether it's my thoughts of things, my ideas about things, my sort of physical experience, my you know, relational experience, like we try to fix ourselves with relationships. Okay, she's my wife, he's my partner, this is how it is. You know, I'm this kind of person, we define things. I'm a Republican, I'm a Democrat. I believe this is the way that it should be. I think it's this way. So we're always trying to create some permanency in a world that's changing. So the practice of equanimity is to really relax in this changing world, to get interested in the changing world, whether we're just feeling the body and the movement of sensation, aware of thought, the movement of thought, emotion in the mind, or just like we did at the last three minutes of the sit, where we're seeing and we're hearing, we're aware of thinking, we're aware of the body. Everything is alive with change, right? All the sense doors are open. We're sensitive in all directions, in a sense. But we learn to get comfortable with the conditioned experience because it reveals what's not moving. Because there's everything moving, but then when we're really relaxed, not reacting and identified with what's moving, it becomes more and more obvious. The insight deepens gradually that what doesn't, which doesn't move, which open and still. And it's like, that realization, that kind of gradual, it's very gradual. So if this doesn't, what I'm saying doesn't make any sense, it doesn't mean that you're not already having this insight. It just means it hasn't matured enough that, that it's sort of, in a sense, an identifiable refuge in your life, something that, in a sense, you can relax into. doesn't mean it's not there, that the refuge isn't there. It just means you don't have enough perspective or understanding to really trust it yet. But the more you trust the movement, trust the conditions of the present moment, the thinking, not the content of the thinking, but the activity of thinking, the activity of emotion, the activity of sensation, the activity of sound, the activity of seeing, not reacting to it, not fixing on it, not trying to make it this way or that way, but just resting in it. What is it, what mind or heart can actually rest, can actually accept, allow all of that change and movement to be?
That's what we're discovering. So you see why the practice is specifically designed to reveal that freedom, that refuge in the midst of everything that's changing. Because the more we open to it, the more we reveal that which is capable of opening, capable of not being pushed around, not being thrown around by what I'm thinking right now, what I'm feeling in my body right now, what I'm seeing around me right now, what I'm hearing right now. What, what is it in the mind, heart, body that's not disturbed, that's not enchanted by everything? You see, so the more we relax with the changing conditions of the present moment, the more that which is not disturbed by the present moment becomes, I guess we could say, is intuited, is revealed, is realized, is often the word that's translated, a realization or insight, like we call this an insight meditation center, common ground is, or vipassana is the Pali word for insight. We're, having, we're intuiting this unconditioned space or stillness or emptiness of the mind. This is not something we make up. It's not something idealistic like heaven, that you know we imagine something out there. This is something really available, something that grows or deepens or reveals itself gradually when we're not, when our life isn't entirely about being identified and reactive and caught up in the conditions of our life, in the conditions of our experience. But when we apply ourselves in this way, relaxing with the conditions, being interested in the conditions of our moment-to-moment experience, this is the insight that develops. We call this the gradual path of awakening. It's a the mind or heart is awakening to something that was always, is always here, but is being missed because our mind, in a sense, is ignorant. It's not noticing it because it's fixated. It's looking for solidity in terms of our meaning, in terms of our definition, in terms of our sense experience, which is always unsatisfying because it's dynamic, it's changing. We'll never find peace in this world. No matter how good your relationships are, they won't really give you complete peace. No matter how competent or together you are in your life, your job, taking care of your body, you're not going to find lasting peace and happiness there. Because the world is in this part of the world, the conditioned world is unstable. It's uncertain. Even if you do everything right, right, you know, this life of ours is being codependent on what everybody else is doing. You could do everything right, you know, and your neighbor is doing something in their backyard. Like I noticed there's this big dead zone on my boulevard uh, where, where Common Ground used to be, where my wife and I currently live, seven blocks away. And there's this big dead zone on our boulevard where we have our grass. And I'm pretty sure, you know, one of my neighbors just in order to get to his or her car, just poured a lot of salt, you know? And then it goes away. So you could do whatever you want, but things happen, you know? We could take care of our body in a very intelligent, skillful way. 
And then all of a sudden, some genetic predisposition manifests. And there's nothing we can do. Or we do all we can to live in a, have a healthy diet. But we live in a city where there's pollution, you know, where we can't avoid it. You know, so we, we are just vulnerable in this way. Joseph Goldstein had this great mantra, and you can work with it, because it really supports this practice of learning to rest, to open, to be interested in our lived experience in order to activate this insight. He said, anything can happen anytime. So we could take our 30 minutes every day or 45 minutes every day that we set aside for meditation, and we could just use it, in a sense, to neurotically cultivate safety, you know, like the perfect posture, the perfect mind state. And in a way, all we're doing is getting tighter and tighter because we're becoming the person who needs things to be a certain way. I need my posture to be a certain way. I need my mind to be a certain way. So it's really easy for our meditation practice to be a control technique, controlling the body, controlling the mind. And that, that doesn't help. But we could instead cultivate a practice knowing that anything can happen anytime. So then our meditation, you know, our 30 or 45 minutes, whatever time we have, then it becomes like cultivating the mind or heart that is capable of being loving and kind and wise no matter how it is, no matter how the conditions are in the moment. So instead of trying to control the body and mind during our 30 minutes, we're cultivating the mind or heart that doesn't need things to be any different than they are. So if things are really beautiful, we're cultivating the mind that doesn't need the beauty to continue. It's great that the body's at ease. It's great that the mind is quiet. But there's no attachment, no kind of ignorant part of the mind thinking it's always going to be this way. Instead, the mind understands it's really nice and it will change. Anything can happen anytime. And then when things are really bad, really difficult, then instead of struggling to make them better, we're cultivating this realization, the heart that can be okay with things the way that they are, knowing that it may get worse, it may get better, the only thing I know is it probably won't stay the same forever, right? That's what we know. Things will change, make it worse, and make it better. Can this be okay? Is there a heart-mind, a way, a wisdom that will allow a thorough relaxation, deep, resonant peace, and a kind of creative freedom in the midst of this moment not being the way that I'd like it to be? Does the heart is getting tight when things are overwhelming? Is that actually the appropriate way? Is that how it has to be? Because you know how it is when we're feeling happy, things are going well. You notice how buoyant the heart is, how willing the heart is to be creative and responsive and take chances, right? I mean, this is, this is the terrible thing about life without wisdom. It's like when people's lives start heading in the direction of being overwhelmed. They get into poverty, 
they suffer great loss, maybe loss of, loss of a loved one. They have serious health issues. It's like the heart, if there's not a lot of wisdom or insight, the heart tends to get tight. It loses its creativity, its buoyancy, its nimbleness. So its kind of range of how to respond becomes really limited. Basically, it has, instead of an infinite number of ways of responding, it has two or three ways. All of them involve getting tight. It's like, which of course doesn't help. And then life becomes more overwhelming, and on and on like that. Now, what we need to do is somehow turn that corner so that we're starting to feel um, some success, because success builds on success. Some ease, the heart feels a little lighter, a little more buoyant. And in that, we're willing to take some chances. Like when we're feeling relatively calm and happy in our meditation, in our daily life, aren't we willing to be a little bit more relaxed and to allow the response to kind of arise in the moment? Like instead of having to leap, what should I say to this person? I need to know. We can kind of just be relaxed for a little bit. And we'll just notice like, you know, well, maybe I'll say this, or maybe I'll say that, but we don't need to know right away. We'll figure, well, I'll figure something out when the time comes. Because we're already feeling somewhat happy and content. So the thing about equanimity is it builds on itself, or this wisdom, this way of being at ease and kind of trusting life to live itself, instead of the mind fixing on how I'm going to do it, what I should be doing, what's good, what's bad, what's mine, what's yours. There's like a trusting in the knowing, in the sensitivity, in the being present, and that somehow the creative, the appropriate response will flow out of that. And this is really the definition of freedom and equanimity. Equanimity, you know, in order for equanimity to really express itself, it has to express itself in sort of a creative, nimble, appropriate response to the circumstances of our life. It's not really fair to say we're being equanimous when we're sort of like, you know, we're sitting in, in our protected corner, sort of shutters on our eyes, ears plugged, saying, okay, I'm equanimous. You know, I'm not reacting. Well, we are reacting. We're withdrawing. Withdrawing from living is a reaction. So equanimity is a, a full, free, natural and appropriate engagement with whatever's showing up in the moment, whatever's arising in the moment. In the tradition, there are five ways to develop equanimity. It's easy, you know, to think, okay, i got to do this. But remember, equanimity that is best understood as a gradual awakening. It's like a, a waking up to this capacity. So equanimity arises when we learn to rest in more fully with the present moment. It is harder to learn to rest when the present moment is difficult. But if that's our present moment, we've got two choices. Do your best to rest with the way things are or struggle to make things other than they are. And don't always take the second strategy. Don't assume that that's the way to actually function 
more skillfully in life. Explore the possibility of resting, even opening, even when the present moment is difficult, the mind is difficult, the body is difficult, or life situation is difficult. Don't assume that struggling with the conditions is our first step. Experiment. See if getting interested in how it is, see maybe that actually allows for a more free and creative response. So when we, I'm going to talk about these five ways to develop equanimity, but try to understand them as the natural arising by just opening, just paying attention to life the lived experience and not kind of end up uh, with uh, what we tend to do. It's, uh, one of my teachers at the end of a three-month retreat, Michelle McDonald-Smith, said that uh, one of the fruits of a, like a good practice at the end of a long retreat, having practiced well, or just a, in your daily life, being really regular in your sitting, in your daily life practice, and one of the real fruits is the dropping away of what we call false equanimity, like an imitation of equanimity. Because this is a real shadow in Buddhist practice. People get interested in Buddhism. We hear, you know, we read and hear and we think, oh, okay, I get it. It's all about equanimity. So instead of actually realizing this capacity for equanimity, we just start pretending we're equanimous when we're not, you know. And we hear about a good friend dying, and we go, well, that's how things are. You know, things come and go. And we just assume we should be equanimous, so we act that way. Or we stub our toe, and we go, oh, it's just pain, you know. But we really hate it. But we don't want to show it, because I'm a Buddhist. <laughs> I once, I once uh, saw this cartoon. I think somebody sent it to me, and a guy was pounding a nail, and he hit his thumb, and it's all swollen. And he just turns to his wife and, and you know, and she's, he's going, Honey, what does your brother say when he bangs his thumb? What's that word? <laughs> you know, where we kind of imagine that we don't react because, you know, we're Buddhists or we're meditators. So we want to be on the lookout for that, that false equanimity. And just to let it be this gradual... Uh, awakening or gradual sort of intuiting this capacity like oh you know three years ago if this had happened I'd be in a full-blown freak out but I seem you know it's just a lot more space in my mind seem to handle I seem to respond to these people a lot more skillfully than I would have and then we just sort of intuit oh something's changed there's a capacity here that wasn't here before. This is how we see the fruit of practice. It's in this sort of, like it's, uh, we discover it when we notice that we're responding differently than we used to. So the first, you know, in the tradition, one of the ways we discover and develop equanimity is we practice a balanced emotion toward all living beings. And that means, first and foremost, a balance <coughs> balance emotion toward ourself. So one of the things we notice about ourselves when we start paying attention is we notice how reactive our minds are. We get identified with this, we get identified with that. We get attached, 
we want this, we turn things into good and bad. So equanimity, uh, imitation equanimity is to imagine that I shouldn't be this way. I shouldn't be so identified. I shouldn't be so attached what this person thinks about me. I shouldn't take it personally if I get fired. That's imitation. That's like an imposition. We're projecting this idea. I'm a Buddhist meditator. This shouldn't matter. So real equanimity is to bring balance to imbalance. Because right now, our mind does swing, right? It swings into this way, and then it swings over here. So the first step is to relate in a balanced way to the natural swings. We're out here in the full freak out, and after a while we get totally exhausted and we just want to be dead, you know? And then this is the exhausted phase. We swing from exhaustion to full freak out. You know, that's an exaggeration some of the time. <laughs> so the first step is to relate to that range of reactivity with balance. And if we can do it with our own swings, then we can start to relate to our partners and our friends and our kids and our bosses. We can start to relate to their swings with balance. Not needing it to be other than it is. The swings in our culture, you know, when there's just more fear, you know, and then there's more denial. and You know, just to be able to relate to all swings, all ups and downs, with balance, not to expect things to be other than they are. This is how we develop equanimity. Then when we get good at that, the second step, second way we can practice, is bringing balance, emotional balance, to inanimate objects. So first to the living beings around us, our pets and friends and partners and family bosses and colleagues, and then to objects. So then we look at how we're relating to our car and our cell phone and our favorite pair of jeans and our house. You know, how are we relating to those things? Do we relate with balance? When we notice our Prius now has a scratch, somebody probably in a parking lot bumped our Prius, you know, <clears throat> it's easy to think, well, that, that shouldn't be. But all inanimate objects are subject to change. That's just how it is. Everything will change. Nobody is in control of all the conditions affecting our inanimate objects. One day when I got home, I took my wedding wing off. I put it in my pocket because it was just a little tight. And then later that evening, I realized my pockets were full of old Kleenexes, and I just threw them away. And there went my wedding ring. <laughs> you know? You know, you think, oh, I'll have this for the rest of my life. Well, no. <laughs> Thankfully, my wife was understanding. We went to Macy's. I got a really good deal. <laughs> so, you know, we can... There are things that we don't expect to change, but we don't necessarily realize that until they change. And then we realize, oh, I was attached to that. You know, we think something like, we want to anticipate that almost. Like, what do we think that is not going to change? And then just start bringing that in. Of course it's going to change. Everything's going to change. 
So we relate to all of our inanimate objects with that understanding. It's going to come and go. And even if it has some solidity, you know, relative solidity, our taste will change. You know, we really liked it for a while, and now we're not so keen about it. And that's okay. And that's a, you know, we might think, oh, but I like, you know, I like the fact that my, you know, like, for example, a long time ago, one of the first really wonderful things I bought after college was a really expensive pressure cooker. I got really into macrobiotics in the early 80s and, uh, you know, read about it. And some of you don't know, macrobiotics is this way of diet, dieting, uh, you know, eating a lot of locally grown foods and mostly uh, vegetarian and a lot of brown rice and a lot of other cooked grains and you need a good pressure cooker for it. So I went out, got this Italian pressure cooker. It's just great the way it's designed and still have it today, some whatever, 30 years later, I guess. And um, so what was I going to say about that pressure cooker? Uh, oh, yeah, well, yeah, exactly. You know, so it was like I was really attached to it, you know. But then you start seeing other things, you know, that are even better. And so just to have a neutral relationship to it, like, well, it's just what it is. It's just a pressure cooker. And, there, and th that coolness of mind is actually, like, we could be really attached to it. And there is a little juice, kind of, when we, like, really like something. But it's actually more pleasant to just have a a kind of cool appreciation for what it is. It's not like we're in denial of what it is. Like, we're not in denial of its functionality, like how uh, good the craftspeople were who designed and built these things. And we can appreciate that, but there's no enchantment. There's no kind of um, exuberance. It's just a quiet appreciation. And we can have that about all things in life. Just a quietly appreciating what's beautifully, what's beautiful rather, and quietly appreciating what's not beautiful, like how it can't be other than what it is. So when we see something that's cheaply made, just understanding, oh, you get what you pay for. This is how it is. You know, people aren't paying attention and they buy things like this. And it gets passed on, or, you know, my mind was captivated by the surface and it didn't look. Of course, this is how it is. So we're not confused by the sort of uh, surface of things, not confused by the beauty and the depth of things, because we get confused by both. We get reactive to what's cheap, what we were fooled by, you know, and bought something that turns out to be a lemon. But we can also get caught by something by so deeply appreciating, like, oh, it was a good deal, it was nicely made, and, and kind of make things more than they are, make things worse than they are. Oh, it's just having been cheated a little. And it's like this. Oh, you know, it's just a beautiful object, just a functional object. So having that cool relationship to inanimate objects, that's that balanced emotion. So the next time you put on your favorite pair of jeans, it just fit right and feel good on your body. Just to notice that, but not to add anything extra. You know, just to let it be a really nice pair of pants. You know, that feels like this. 
but not to have to whip something up like a story about, about them. So that's the second. Balance the motion toward inanimate things. The third and fourth ways, um, avoiding people who are not equanimous, you know, subject to emotional extremes, and cultivating friendships with people who have this kind of balance. And now again, this isn't about uh, cultivating aversion or fear of those people who are reactive. I mean, some of our best friends, including ourselves, you know, we're the reactive people <laughs> subject to emotional extremes. So it's just, I think, three and four really pointing to this truth that we're subject, we're being co-authored by who we're around, by the conditions we're around. And we just want to really get this so that we'll make, we'll make choices. We understand like different friends are like different kinds of medicine. And so when we're already reactive, then that's the time to take some medicine over here, you know, and call one of their, those more balanced friends, or at least a friend who's balanced in this particular way, you know, who can be around us when this is going on in our life, and they're going to relate to it with balance. As opposed to being with this friend, who's going to really, it's going to trigger their own stuff. When I talk about my loss, you know, it's going to trigger their own fear. And they're going to go into either full-fledged denial mode, let's go get drunk, or, you know, full-fledged reactive. You know, I'll fix it. You know, I know what you should do. This is terrible. You've got to do this. You've got to do that. So we, we can really choose our situations and our friends like medicine. And we know what, what does this mind need, what does this heart need to bring it more into balance, to make it more skillful. Because you know how it is. We often you know, choose just the opposite. Like we're feeling really reactive. And in a way, unconsciously mostly, we want someone to confirm our reactivity, to kind of justify or make us feel okay about wanting to vent, wanting to react, or wanting to get drunk, or deny, or put our heads in the sand. And then the last is to incline the mind toward balance. And what I take this to mean is that the Buddha, or this tradition, it's really pointing to uh, the development of a taste for freedom, or a taste for equanimity. So instead of um, mistaking excitement and intensity for what's really wholesome, what really feels good, we actually can see, well, intensity is one thing, and it has some juice, some kind of maybe even pleasant charge to it. But actually, what my heart, mind, body really prefers is the peace of disenchantment, the peace of balance. So wisdom in, Buddhist, in the Buddhist tradition, wisdom and balance are closely aligned. Wise understanding has this flavor of balance, avoiding extremes. It's not that we don't understand extremes, but the capacity to understand what an extreme is comes from being balanced. So, and the thing about this balance, the real insight, is we never lose it. So even when some strong emotion gets triggered in our mind, 
we can still relate to that strong emotion with balance, with that stillness. Stillness and flowing, still flowing water, right? From that quote from Ajahn Chah. So this balance is, it can't actually be taken away. We can forget it, of course. We can get attached or identified with the movement. And then in a sense, we become unhinged. We're just getting thrown around. But actually, there's never anything in the way of rediscovering that balance, the space in which all that movement is happening. Sharon Salzberg, and I'll leave it here and open it up for discussion, but Sharon Salzberg's got this great little image of being on a tightrope, you know, and if we get out of balance, we grasp for what we want and we lose our balance and fall, or we get frightened and we lose our balance and fall, or we space out and we lose our balance and fall. These are just greed, anger, and delusion, the three sort of conditioned habits in the mind. Greedy, desiring, craving, fearing, being aversive, and deluding, being deluded, spacing out, being distracted. But in this story, or this image he creates, we always land on another tightrope. So every moment of our life, no matter how reactive we've been, no matter how caught up, the next moment there's this possibility of relating to that panic attack, that full-fledged freakout, full-fledged denial, distraction, you know, putting our head in the sand. We can relate to that next moment in a balanced way. Oh, this is what it's like to be putting my head in the sand. This is what it's like to want to kill my boss. This is what it's like you know, to not want to talk to my partner again. Oh. So we can relate in the next moment with balance, no matter how wild the mind is or was in the moment previously. We don't need conditions to be different than they are in order to relate in a balanced way. This is, the re this is why equanimity or this insight is so profoundly transforming, because it's unconditional. It doesn't depend on our life situation being different than it is in order to be free, balanced, in order to relate with wisdom and love. It would be nice to hear from people in the last 10 minutes, just to, if you have some experience, both when it didn't work out for you, but also when it does work out and you're able to relate in this way. So what comes to mind from your experience or any questions that you have about the talk tonight? Yes, please say your name.
I was like, well, this, this thing, and it kind of seems like you're still kind of denying things. And I was kind of really starting to realize that, I'm like, well, I really need to like surrender, and I really have an issue sometimes where it's like no wall, and I should maybe really focus on this. And so I'm, I was getting a little worried. I'm like, well, but I, I really get some comfort in the saying, but they seem opposite. Yeah. I guess, and I couldn't reconcile it. Yeah. Thanks for bringing that up, Tracy. So when, so some things, intense things are going on. You use that phrase, not mine, not me, not who I am. And you've got some space and some calm. Now, ideally, in that moment, the mind would have noticed what's predominant and gotten interested. Gotten interested in the calm, in the balance in that insight that here you are in the middle of that difficult, sounds like a difficult time, and there was some balance and some calm, and to really, in a sense, more deeply open and taste that. Because what that does is it, it makes you realize that you're not concocting it. You're not making up that calm or that balance. It's actually there. And that, then that prepares you for the next moment when doubt arises, right? Because that kind of calm and balance is not the habit of the mind, it's in a sense going to challenge the habits of the mind, which are more used to reactivity. Like, wait, I don't trust you. I trust reactivity. But then, because you, you had a moment, just a second or two, of being interested in the calm and the balance, and you really saw, this is actually how it is. The mind is actually balanced. It's actually calm. This is not... Uh, like a veneer. It's really happening. Then when the doubt would come, you'd be able to have more uh, a probability of relating and saying, oh, now it's like this. But you'd relate to the doubt not with identification, which sounds like what happened. You became the one who was doubtful. That you could have related to the doubt with balance. Oh, it's just doubt. Welcome. Because what is possible, or what is that heart that can open to doubt without being confused by it? That's the balance. That's the wisdom. And so the next time, you know, play with the phrase or whatever you're inspired to play with, because the key is we have to do something to break the cycle. Otherwise, we're going to keep doing what we always do, getting what we've always gotten. So we have to use these semi-artificial techniques to break the habits of the mind. We've got to do something different. And that's what these techniques are, the different phrases or the different ways of looking or opening to experience. It's just a way to sort of break that pattern of reactivity. And then once we do, then, then we want to, uh, like that moment of mindfulness, we want to uh, have the next moment also be a moment of mindfulness. Relating with balance. First you relate to the balance with balance. Oh, this is really nice. This feels really good. It's just balance. And then the doubt arises. Oh, this is doubt. It's just doubt. It's just like this. You know? And then you might realize, wow, I'm not getting identified with the doubt. Oh, this is balance. This is wisdom. This is insight. I'm having insight that the heart is capable of seeing doubt without getting identified with it. Oh, this is great. Oh, this is attachment. 
you know, getting attached to the inside. It's like this. Oh, it seems that's lawful too. Can I? Because now you're not the one who's identified. You're the one who knows that the mind is identified. Do you know? So that's what I was saying before. You can always start again with balance. No matter how many mistakes you've made, you can make the, the next moment can be a moment of balance or wisdom. Thanks for bringing that up, Tracy. Time for maybe one more comment. If, yeah, Noah. Just start where you're at, because that sounds good. Like, if where we're at is more in the tendency of like um, thinking that not caring is the best strategy, because that's that's basically half of us. Half of us think caring, you know, with attachment is the strategy, and the other half of us think giving up on life is the best strategy. Neither, both are equally painful and unskillful. So we just have to start there. Can you more and more see that habit, because it's a predominant habit for you, in a balanced way, in a non-attached way? So see it without judging yourself. Just Because what you're going to see is, oh, this hurts. This habit of not caring, disengaging, it hurts. You're going to see that, and you're going to relate to it with wisdom and compassion in a balanced way. Oh, this just hurts. And then, see, all of a sudden, you're not disengaging. By relating to that habit of disengaging with wisdom, then you're being intimate. That's the opposite of disengaging. So you're already breaking the habit by relating to the habit with wisdom, which is getting close without attachment. That's what wisdom is. That's what equanimity is. Getting close without attachment, without identification. So you get close to that tendency to disengage, to give up with compassion, with wisdom, with interest. And then that will start breaking. It's like a house of cards. The whole thing starts to fall apart. We just have to start. So knowing that that's your habit is a huge step, actually. Mostly we're blind to our basic habits in life. And so by that, because of that, we're just caught in it. So now that you know, then then just like have the resolve to relate to the habit in a different way. So interest as opposed to identification. Yeah, and then check back in with the group. You know, it'd be nice to, if you learn something from that switch, you know, check back in. So we need to leave it here. Let's just take a few seconds and let go of the words. It's always nice to appreciate being here in community with people who are interested in this practice. Just to use our minds to think about all the men and women who have been cultivating mindfulness in life over the through the generations, and their lives were also busy. They also had responsibilities, and they did their best to find the time to cultivate this path of awakening, paying attention in this balanced way. And they passed on the teachings as best they could. So we can be inspired to cultivate mindfulness as best we can in our lives, to share it with those around us, 
to be a cause for peace and wisdom and compassion in the world. So may this be so. Thanks again, everyone, for coming. Really nice to be here together tonight. And the last thing I want to mention is that um, the center operates on this principle of dana. It's a spiritual practice of giving and receiving. So there's no charge for any of the programs. There are no suggested donations. We just ask that whenever you think of Common Ground or take a program or do something here at the center, you just reflect on what a beautiful gift it is. It happens because everything at the center, the teachings, the building, is a free gift from everybody who did whatever they did to make it happen. And we want to really tune into how nice that is, that it's a free gift, given freely, no strings attached. It should be a cause for joy, not a cause for guilt, like, oh, I should give something back, I should volunteer. That's the point. So when you do give money, when you do volunteer, then let that be a free gift. You're doing it because it feels good. It makes you happy to give some money to help pay the mortgage or to support the teachers, or you volunteer your time. You do it because it feels good. It makes you happy. And it really protects the center to tune into receiving everything freely and to tune into whenever you give, it feels good. And if you give too much out of guilt or whatever, bad, just old habits, you know, you always have to be the person who gives that sort of being in that parental role, it won't feel good when you really look at it. Oh, I'm neglecting other things, or I'm doing this, contributing this money neurotically. So then change it. You know, Or if you don't give enough, it won't feel good. It'll feel you know, that you're just like uh, being stingy or you know, afraid to get involved or something. So you want to check and really do what feels good. And in this way, somehow the organization seems to be not just surviving, but really thriving. So please reflect on that. And if you have any questions, you can talk to me. Or we have a lot of leaders. Jerry's here, and Todd, and Mark's on the board, and uh, Evelyn's here, our program host tonight, and lots of people here are community leaders. And you can Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.